HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Blueprint, the original juice cleanse program to offer different levels of intensity depending on your needs and current diet. For more information, visit Blueprint.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink uh, on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I am the new guy who got stuck with the early slide. (laughs) I'm Joe Campanelli, um, the host of In the Drink. Uh, And it is early. It's uh, 10 a.m., especially for uh, people in the restaurant industry. And we have one here today. Uh, Well, in the bar industry, I should say. Um, uh, Mr. Phil Ward, very happy to have you on the show. Uh, Phil, welcome to In the Drink. Thanks, Joe. Nice to be here. But it is early. It is early. Thank you so much for, for getting up so early. It's good. I'll, I'll try to be productive today, make the most of it. <laughs> um, Phil, Phil is, with, without a doubt, uh, one of the uh, most inspiring bartenders here in uh, the United States of America. Uh, it's uh, exciting um, bar programs kind of around the country now and at, at this point around uh, the world with the new partnership with uh the fatty crew guys heading over to hong kong yes that was my first foray across the world <laughs> um as well as um uh, my well here in uh here in uh, the east village or downtown new york city it's a great tequila mezcal bar um and he was for many years the the head bartender at uh at death and company um how did you get to work with all these these great people and uh Pretty amazing resume you have. Um, well, it started out like a lot of things in life, like just dumb luck. I was uh, 28 years old. I lived in Pittsburgh. I was tired of Pittsburgh, so I threw everything I owned away and bought a uh, a flight to Rome. And I decided I was just going to try to stay over in like Europe. And <clears throat> I didn't do any planning, so I didn't uh, I didn't figure out anything like paperwork and things like that for working. So. When I got over there, I realized, like, wow, I'm an idiot. I didn't do any research about this. So I was like, all right, I'll just keep traveling. 
and see if something like falls into the seat of my pants. And then like four months later, nothing fell into the seat of my pants. And uh, I was running out of money. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go home now before I'm totally broke and stuff like that. Um, I flew back to New York because uh, I'd been here one other time and I had an interesting weekend. I had a friend who lived here and I was in Greece and it was like $500 to fly back to New York where I was like 1400 to fly to Pittsburgh. So I figured I'd fly fly to New York, spend a week here, see my friend uh, who lived here, and then just go back home and probably shoot myself. But through the course of the week, uh, through the course of the week that I was visiting my friend, I met her uh, friend uh, Ricky Chips, who was in a punk rock band. I can't remember the name of the band. Was that his real name, Ricky Chips? I don't know. Yeah, that's Maybe. his punk rock band. Yeah, yeah it yeah. could be. Yeah. Really cool guy, though. But they lived right out here in Bushwhack, and uh, he was desperate to sublet his place because he was going on... Uh, going on tour with his band to Europe so he gave me a sublet for a month for like $300 so I was like oh shit I have like a 300 a 30 day tryout in New York for like $300 so I did that and um wound up staying obviously um but I was a waiter more than a bartender in Pittsburgh so I got a couple jobs um before well one job really at Fiamma uh as a waiter which was one of the worst jobs I ever had um and then after I left there, luckily I got a job as a barback at a Flatiron Lounge, and that was about six weeks after they opened. It was just ridiculous timing because at that time, about the only two other places in the city where you could get good drinks was Flat or uh, Angel Share and Milk and Honey. Mm-hmm. That was like a combined seventy seats. Like employees, o- employees only wasn't even open, even open yet. So at, at this time, was the restaurant industry being a server was this something that you loved doing or this is something you're doing while you were figuring it out no i was something i did to make money i i'm i'm really i don't know i like in pittsburgh always i like to do was like read books and uh i don't know spend a lot of time in my own head and things like that like it was really something i did just to make money i didn't really get crazy about it until i remember I remember when I got hired at uh, Flatiron, Julie Reiner, my boss and the owner there, she asked me, like, would you ever want a bartend? And I said, no. And she's like, well, I was like, because, like, to me at that time, bartending was serving, like, vodka tonics and Miller Lights to douchebags in Pittsburgh and wasn't worth the social interaction. So I had, like, I had no desire to actually bartend. And then I remember the first the first shift I was working at Flatiron barbacking, I'm watching, I'm like, what the, What are these people doing? They're putting, like, five things in that drink, you know? It's really weird. And then I tasted one, and I'm like, holy, this is this is unbelievable. Like, this is, I've never tasted anything like this, you know? And so I, I just got really interested in it then, and that's when I really started enjoying the industry more. So did you go back to Julie and be like, remember what I said about not wanting uh, to bartend? <laughs> no, basically, um, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think I was about the best bar back in the history of the earth, like... I I pretty much she knew not only like not only was I a good bar back but she knew that I knew how to make all the drinks because I'd watch everybody make the drinks we only had like probably like 10 12 drinks on the menu at that time and every once in a while if we were really screwed in uh you know me and her we used to work Tuesdays together says way back and uh you know if she was really really screwed on the point it would just be us and she was the one bartender and Flatiron's a big bar and we could get pretty busy on Tuesday so every bar. every once in a while like the easiest drink like a Hanalea Sun which was basically just like shaking three and a half ounces of pineapple infused rum she would let me make a drink 
But um, the way she finally, I finally got my first bar shift was she knew I knew how to make all the drinks. And one Sunday, a bartender called off. And it's hard to get a bartender to work on Sunday at all, let alone last minute calling one in. So she called me to come in and cover a Sunday. And that's how I got my first bar shift. And then eventually worked my way into bartending. Do you remember this first shift? Uh, you know what's really odd? I remember that about it, but I really don't remember it much. Uh-huh. And then the other thing, too, was I wound up working Sundays there. For and Sundays were a weird day there because you work Saturday nights and it's just a mob scene. Mm-hmm. Lots of like half the you know ten maybe I don't know how many staff was there maybe like six to ten with like managers and security guards. And then Sundays you'd go in and you were just by yourself. Like there was a door guy who would come in at like ten a ten p.m. I think, but you'd just be there by yourself the whole afternoon. And it was so odd because the rest of the week there was always people there. And I worked that shift for probably like a year and a half. So. I think it all blended together, so I don't remember that shift, which is an interesting question. I never really <laughs> thought of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I I remember the first time you know being on the floor as a as a server as a sommelier, very I think very distinctly because mostly because I was scared out of my yeah. mind that I was going to do yeah. something terrible and yeah. had, had nightmares about it. Yeah, I can have I have some I have some memory <laughs> recollection of like first bartending and being like. It's weird because it was nice, but that was one of the reasons why I like barbacking more than waiting tables because you got to work in a fun atmosphere and like most of the people in the bar business are to a degree, they know how to laugh, they're sarcastic, they're fun to be around to a degree. Um, and, but you don't have to deal with the customers, you know, which is nice. Cause I'm not the most gigantic people person. Like the thing that I like about the type of bartending I got into with cocktails was you had the cocktails as like a common language in between you to like talk about. So you didn't just have to like, like just blather nonsense nonstop or something like that. I mean, it's still, you meet people who it's great to do that with or something, but um, that's why I like barbacking because you could just lay back, do your job, hang out with the people you were there, and not have to get up early. Yeah, Thanks well, again, Joe. <laughs> Thank you again. Uh, I appreciate you jumping on the G train for me this morning and for, for all of us. Um, well, but what part, what part of the job of the bartender do you think that, that personality and, and interacting with guests really is? And, uh, is it enough to just make the best, the best drink and or the no, best drink for the guests? Absolutely not. Um, I think I think even like you probably have like you you have several different parts uh, about like bartending and stuff like that. Obviously, it's very important to be. I mean, it depends on what bar you're working in. I mean, a lot of people still work in bars where you know it's the same thirty bars that are on every bar in the world, and you know it's light beer and. You know, some of those people are great bartenders because people come in to see them all the time because they're entertaining, the guests like them, this and that. Um, so I think I think personality really is a big thing. Um, also, besides the fact of making a good drink, is like efficiency. Like I think you know one of the most important things in the bar business is like making sure your bar's set up run, set up well, and the bar runs well. You know, because you know even if you make good drinks, like we've probably all been a, in a bar somewhere where supposedly they made good drinks and, you know, you go there and it takes like 10, 15 minutes to get a drink. That's just unacceptable, you know? So I really think besides the personality of the bartender, it's also like the efficiency of the bartender. Like I really, I mean, I've been in bars where I've watched bartenders working and it's actually painful to like watch how slow they are. It's just like you, you've got to realize like, you know, like walking, like one of the things that kills me is when you walk into a bar and maybe you're even there in the bar already and it's not you. 
Um, cause I'm always really super, 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 super patient. You know, I've never like people who wave money at bartenders who put their hand up or wave at them. They're just, I can't stand them. <laughs> so I will sit there and like die of dehydration before I will ever do that. Um, but when you're sitting at a bar and you can like watch people and like when people walk into a bar and the bartender does not acknowledge them, there's absolutely no excuse for that. You almost always have time to just give them a menu or something, but there's absolutely no excuse for like never making at least eye contact. All you have to do is swivel your head just the tiniest bit, little nod, doesn't take your energy. You should be able to, if you're a bartender, you're a multitasker, and you should be able to do that while you're doing whatever you're doing. Um, that, I, I agree with that. At, at, uh, at our bar and Fora, we give everyone water as soon as they yeah. come in. This way, at least they, they yeah. have something in front of them. They know that we know that they're there. Yeah. And that's kind of the... the yeah. The, yeah, water's good. Menu's better. I menu's like, better, I like yeah. menu before water. Yeah. Personally, I always like... I think it's always nice giving people water when they sit down. I think like bars without menus, I think they're crazy. Because it's like you're... For sure. It, it buys you time. It's your ambassador. It's a place to start things like that and it tells everyone else like oh that person has already been greeted like i i know yeah, yeah, yeah. if there's nothing in front of them then yeah well that one gets it. cloudy because people always want to hang on to the menu if it's an interesting place and it's like you're screwing up the system here people but <laughs> you have to let them so would you say that um what do you what would you say were the biggest lessons you learned from your time at Flatiron Lounge that you brought on to future jobs? Um, you know, Jolie, the one thing is like Jolie obviously taught me how to um to make a she was the first person who taught me how to make a drink and things like that. But the thing she did is like what we were talking about just now, like efficiency and like business. Like she's a good businesswoman, like and she'll you know, she doesn't care if she's not the greatest, geekiest uh cocktail maker in the world she's a great she makes great drinks and she's a great businesswoman and you know that's what's more important to her and i still you know things the way she ran her bar and like always tried to keep her staff like smaller so and having the managers bust their ass to like make sure the staff makes money um things like that i think a lot of that i've i've taken away um also learned that it's really bad to have a lot of shoes in the office. I remember she used to always complain about everybody having their shoes in the office. I'm like, what's this woman talking about? It's not a big deal. And it's really funny because I still have all these Jolie Reiner moments as a uh, as a business owner now where I'm like, God damn it, that's what Jolie used to say, you know? <laughs> and because we used to like squabble about things and stuff like that. And so that's really funny. Uh, I remember she used to, we'd be behind the bar and she couldn't remember her recipes. I'd be like the hell's wrong with you it's your recipe how how can you not remember your recipe she'd be like you just wait you just wait and like now every time i can't remember one of my one of my recipes i hear jolie like laughing at me in the background oh i am taking so much uh solace in this because that happens to me all the time um in reality actually we i uh most of the cocktails at the restaurants aren't aren't mine anymore, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a better thing yeah. for the quality of the cocktails. Yeah. Um, but even the ones that I that I have created that are still on the lists, uh, sometimes I have a hard time yeah. remembering them, and yeah. uh, I, I feel I feel better about that. Yeah. Now. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's all of us, Joe. I think. <laughs> and uh, and part of that is probably we're just getting old. This is true too. Uh. Anyway, uh, on to the next adventure. Um, you left the Flatiron Lounge, and did you immediately hook up with uh, the Death and Company no, folks? No, I, was I, I helped uh, Audrey open the Pegu Club at um, be, between then and there. 
Okay. Yeah. Another one of the great cocktail bars in yeah. the city. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Like, just the dumb luck of, like, when I got into this, when I did, it's just, it's kind of retarded. Like, when I look back the way it worked, it's really funny. Yeah. Wow. And then, so then you helped open uh, Milk and Honey and PDT no, and no, all this. No, no. <laughs> that, that wasn't my work. Um, but it was fun to be like opening bars when those places were. It was really exciting. Yeah. You know, every time a new bar opened, then it was like a really big deal. Um, and know. this is not too long ago. No, I mean we're talking Flatiron. I mean Pegu Flatiron opened. It'll be I think it'll be eleven years, um, or it was eleven years this year. I think. So I think Pegu opened. Pegu should be up to like about seven or eight years now. Mm-hmm. Then I think, if my math is right. And then I guess DNC and PDT would be probably about seven ish too, I think six or seven. Yeah, what do you think has changed in the city that has allowed for these places to to open and thrive that just didn't exist twelve um, years ago? You know, honestly, like I always say, ignorance is and bliss. It's a vodka tonic. It's like people didn't know these things existed and it's really easy to make good customers for cocktail bars because most people like what i was talking about at Flatiron the first time i tasted one of those drinks i'm like Mm -hmm. jesus what is this i didn't know this existed and a lot of people never knew that and i think once you have a good drink you know you you still go back and you'll still have like your your little standard whatever sometimes vodka tonic things like that but i think once you really get hooked you're hooked and not only are you hooked but you're like dragging your friends like you have to come try this this is so weird because it's like a total new experience and i'm you know if you look at new york the way people love to eat and go out and you know try new places and things like that it's really kind of ridiculous that it took that long for people to start going out and searching out you know the same being a foodie in liquid form Mm -hmm. instead of uh just chewing it I agree. No. I mean, in terms of uh, the food, there people have been pushing the envelope with food. Even the wine programs, interesting beers have been around a little bit longer than that. Yeah. But it's it's just recent, and yeah. uh, I think the exciting thing is that it's really happening exponentially. It's it's really exploding. Yeah, I think really it's um it was like word of mouth, and a really great thing too is like um you know press people can be really annoying sometimes, but I really think they helped a lot by writing starting to write about drinks more. I think it's the same thing it was the same thing with them where they've written about food for so long they were probably so excited to write about drinks, you know, something new to write about, a new subject that's really cool and different and things like that. Um so I think that played a big part of it too. And now you have so many places where you can hardly walk into a a a, a new restaurant without them having some sort of cocktail list and you know, it's not necessarily always good, but it's at least pushing the envelope and saying, you know, hey, we're doing something different here and getting people's, opening people's eyes to the possibilities. Like, I, I agree with that. So uh, on that note, we are going to take a short break um, and we'll be right back with Phil Ward uh, on In the Drink. Blueprint is the original juice cleanse program to offer different levels of intensity depending on your needs and current diet. 
Designed to purify and detoxify, Blueprint Cleanse is made from the freshest 100% raw and USDA-certified organic ingredients, cold-pressed to retain nutrients and flavor. Blueprint also offers a line of organic juices, cold-pressed and raw, in a variety of fruit and vegetable combinations, and available in individual bottles. Blueprint Cleanse is available at Whole Foods Market and many other retailers across the U.S., to learn more about their line of organic cleanses, juices, and other products, visit them today at Blueprint.com or call them at 866-774-6831. That's 866-774-6831. Work hard, play hard, cleanse, repeat. You are listening to Ancestors by Peels here on Heritage Radio Network. We're back on In the Drink at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campbelli, here with... Phil Ward, and we're talking about uh, cocktail bars here in New York City, um, and Phil's worked at most of the great ones, uh, um, uh, you know, and when all those bars were opening, um, whether it was Flatiron Lounge, Pegu Club, uh, PDT, uh, your bar, Myoel, um, or De- Death and Company, actually, which, which you were a head bartender of for years, and uh, came back and you were telling me you'd done a little stint back there uh, to help out for fun. Um, you know, I, I was here in the city. I, I went to NYU and, and saw, saw them popping up all around. And we were just talking about how that the the bar programs have actually, um, or, or great bars, have influenced restaurant programs. And I think that's really that's really interesting as well. Yeah, well, I mean, like we were talking about, uh, did we talk about that? Yeah, that was what we were talking about. Yeah. Is it's really dumb where you have a city where people love to drink. And, you know, you'd go to, like, I remember one time I uh, took my girlfriend to La Bernadette, I think, uh, that really fancy French place for something, like an anniversary or a birthday or something like that. And, you know, get you know before I have a really fancy meal, I want a, I want a nice cocktail. I want, like, you know, but, like, a Manhattan or a Negroni or, like, a Martini, something that's just, like really going to burn a hole in your stomach and get you hungry because you want to eat a lot and stuff like that. And, you know, you'd go to restaurants like that and they wouldn't even be able to make like a a good Manhattan or a good martini or even a freaking Negroni, which is just like equal parts booze. And you could even get it over ice, you know. Um, So it's just that that contradiction was ridiculous to me. And um, it's great now. I think you're seeing like what you were saying, Mm -hmm. where people are starting to restaurants. I think it's going both ways because you're having restaurants now who are having better drink programs and you're also having like cocktail bars now are also starting to have food. That's, that's a really big thing. Like flat iron, no food. Um, I guess, I guess in, uh, angel share, no food, milk and honey, no food. Right. Um, death and company. We did have food. I guess employees only might've been the first cocktail bar that really put a focus on food too. Um, which was a really good idea. Now you're seeing like almost no cocktail bars open without food, which I think is a great idea. Oh, well, um, I think I think it's smart. You uh, you end up staying around for another drink yeah. if you have a little yep. bite in front of you. Yep. I, 
I can yeah. still remember people coming into Flatiron and they'd have like two, three drinks and they'd be like, do you have a food menu? They'd like, be like, sorry, we don't. And this was 10 years ago when people weren't really used to having two, two and a half ounces of booze in their drinks. And they'd be like, well, we're sorry. Can we have the check? We got to leave. We got to go get something to eat, you know? Um, so I think it's good that I yeah. think it's going both ways, actually. And when you open your bar, my well, you food yeah oh no food food was a food was a very pertinent pertinent part of um of the plan because back then like there really wasn't many like employees only was doing food uh pdt had hot dogs um i mean we did you know places like pegu and um death and company like we had small plates and things like that but the food wasn't really it was almost more like we tried to be nice and do like it'd be really good but it really wasn't like on par with the drinks and stuff like that. And one of the plans for my well was to really, I really wanted people to come in there to eat as well. Cause I mean, really it's a, like what we're talking about, you have to have people come in and have something to eat so they can keep drinking. But also it's just a, it's just a good business model, you know, because like early in the week, early in the night, you know, you're not always going to get as many cocktail nerds and people coming out to drink at that time. So, you know, my well is great because early in the night, early in the week, we have people coming in for dinner. You know, so I always say we're um, we're not a restaurant or a bar. We're a hybrid because, you know, we probably do like between like 30, like if you round it off, probably like 30, 35 percent food sales, which I think is is a pretty good model because you make so much more money off of booze, you know, but we still have enough people who come in there to eat. You know, so we have people who come in, come there to eat. Mm-hmm. We have people who come there to drink and everything in between. And tell us, so. do you have any um, larger guiding principles when it comes to choosing the uh, like a, something to eat with a drink? Um, what do you mean? Like, what are are some like, pairing you're ideas? You're talking about me? Yeah. Like when general, I go out to eat? Yeah. Do you, is it just when you're in the mood to eat or whatever you're in the yeah. mood to drink and that yeah. works? Honestly, or? I'm a weird... I. I mean, I do believe in pairings. I've tasted things that I enjoy pairing. But personally, like, you know, when me and my girlfriend will we'll cook, we cook a lot and stuff like that. We'll go out, we'll buy like two bottles of wine, and we'll usually drink all the wine while we're cooking and then eat dinner without wine. Like, I'm not, I even, when I eat, I, I, I don't even like to drink like water when I eat usually. Like, a lot of times, like, if I'm drinking wine or stuff with dinner, I'll, even if we have wine left over, I'll drink the wine until we start eating and then I'll eat and then I'll start drinking wine again. So myself personally, I'm not a huge, uh, I'm not a huge like pair. Like my favorite pairing would probably definitely be in Mexico. I love drinking tequila and mezcal with, with tacos or beer and things like that. Um, but as far as like wine and things like that go, I'm, I'm not the hugest. I'm not a really, really huge. So you'd fan say you like wine. those pairings that kind of culturally make sense together. Something the, like the that. ethnic food yeah. with the ethnic yeah. drinks. Because actually, yeah. the other one I was going to bring up, like regular, like you know, regular wine. I'm not usually real keen on that. Eating it with food, um, even though you know I love red wine. I love pasta. It's probably one of my favorite foods, but I don't really enjoy drinking it with the food. Um, but then the other one is probably sherry. Like I love drinking sherry with with like. You know anything jamon tapas like because um, those they just go together and sherry it's like so dry and crisp it's like it complement the flavor complements the food but then it just like it cleanses your palate too and you're ready for another bite like mm-hmm. i feel like right you know normal wine it, it um you know it just kind of muddies your palate so to speak i'd rather and it, i'd rather just drink it by itself and then eat and then drink the rest of the wine well 
I, I mean, hearing you describe cherries make me hungry, but I'm going to disagree with you on on the other yeah, part. Yeah. Oh no, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, oh no, I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I'm just saying from my personal, yeah, from absolutely. my personal taste, you know. Um, so let's let's go back to the um, uh, your your thoughts about uh, m- Mexican drinks like tequila and mezcal. How did you get into that? I know your bar Mayuel is um, based on all yeah, agave based yeah. drinks. Yeah. Um, honestly, you know, g- going back to Flatiron days, um, the way I always credit myself, besides um, Jolie teaching me how to bartend and um, make a drink, was by reading old books. I think any bartender who wants to be a good bartender, they have to read the classics. Like today, I think you have way too many bartenders who get a job in a bar. They learn how they get taught how to make 12 of the house cocktails. And all of a sudden, they're a mixologist and they're a genius. Um, Whereas I think the way Mm -hmm. to actually become a good bartender is you got to read all the old books. Because basically, you read all the old books, you learn the classics, and you learn uh, balance and structure. And that's really, that's the most important part of drink making. It's like balance and structure like every good template is a blueprint for making more good drinks like i really don't understand why people have a hard time making drinks and i think it's because they don't read all the old books and they don't learn balance and structure so that's basically how i credit myself with learning how to um make drinks after jolie taught me Mm -hmm. how to make drinks what's your Um, what's your required reading list um I don't know if I want to go through a required don't, list. <laughs> you don't have to. Um, That's okay. But, you know, it goes from everything. It goes from, like, older books like the Savoy to, yeah. like, things like I love Gary Regan's books. Um, and, you know, the books I was reading then, I was, you know, there weren't nearly as many good books no, then as there right. are now. Yeah. Um, Dave Wondrich is a must. He's probably – Dave Wondrich uh, and, you know, his his books are great historically too. Um, another one of favorite of mine was uh, The Gentleman's Companion by Charles mm-hmm. H. Baker. I, um, I find I keep reading, rereading Imbibe. That's like the yeah, one that yeah, I keep. I mean, yeah, I mean, Dave, Dave's books read like a novel. I mean, they're great. Him and Gary, they're the, I think they're the two best writers. Like, like um, the Joy of Mixology, which I have to say, Gary was a terrible name for a drink, or a drink book. But <laughs> but it's like the beginning. Usually, you're like getting through like the beginning part where you're reading shit, and you're like, all right, can we get to the recipes? Can we get to the recipes? But that book, it's like you get to the recipes, you're like, damn, it's over. Like He's just such a funny, funny bird. Um, but back to the tequila mezcal thing, um, like I said, that's where I feel like I really learned how to make drinks was the old books. And you know, as a bartender, you want to try something new. And when you read the old books, there's really no tequila recipes, and there's real, there's damn well no damn mezcal drinks in there. And uh, so, you know, I'd always enjoyed tequila, you know, and so I started gravitating towards tequila, trying tequila and drinks, you know. And um, that's what I had a little luck with, like the first drink I think I ever got on a menu. Um, was at the Flatiron. It was the um, La Pera, which was like just like um, a sour, a pear, a tequila sour with a Bartlett pear, things like that. Um, and so I just started like Pegu Club. I think a couple of the drinks I got on the menu there were also um, tequila. And so I just started gravitating to it more and more. And then when once Death and Company opened, and I was more in charge of the drinks and things like that, you know, I went right for it. And then I started discovered um, spicy drinks. And that really was a big game changer. Um, and then just started making more and more tequila drinks. And then, and then you know, then I tasted mezcal for the first time and put those in, uh, in put mezcal in a drink. And I'm just like, that is re- 
did that just happen? Like, I remember the first mezcal cocktail I ever made was for Lynette uh, Moraro at table two. She asked me for something, and I made her a barbon court daiquiri with a quarter ounce of mezcal in it. And I was just like, that can't be possible that a quarter ounce of mezcal made a daiquiri taste like that. And that was just like, ding, like the light went on. Mm-hmm. And uh, from that point on, it's just started making a lot more drinks with tequila and mezcal. And then, um, you know, at that point, that, you know, two years into Death & Co., or maybe a year and a half, we had our menu up to, like, probably, I think we had, like, 70, 70 drinks or something at one point, and we had it broken up by section. So we had, like, the tequila, agave page at that point, the gin page, the whiskey page, all that shit. And um, a lot of the nights, you know, we would sell more tequila and mezcal cocktails than anything else. So when it was time uh, that somebody was like, do you want to open your own bar? I was like, yes. And they're like, well, what should we do? It was like 10 seconds. I was like, we have to do the tequila mezcal cocktail bar. And then after that, I started traveling to Mexico Mm -hmm. and going down and meeting like going to Oaxaca, meeting the Zapotecs, visiting the Palenques. And then it's just it was over then. Like I just got fell every time I go to Mexico, I fall more and more in love with it. And it's and same thing with mezcal. Yeah, it seems like there was it was really good timing as well uh that the the face of what tequila and mezcal based drinks are here in in new york at least what what we've been seeing in the early 2000s versus the late like we there 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 are a lot better products that are available yeah. as well um yeah no the, there is that i think um like when we opened my well we had 12 mezcals we now have over 40 um and <laughs> You know, that's so, in four years, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that that is definitely um I really think I really think, you know, this whole Menescal thing, like when we won we actually won uh Best New Cocktail Bar at Tales of the Cocktail. Yes, you did. Congratulations. And, and when I did that, Amazing. it was so weird because I was sitting with Ron Cooper from Del McGay and it was Ron Cooper's birthday. And I gave Ron Cooper my award because all I did was he made my job easy by getting us the good shit. Yeah. Like it, it's like we were just lucky, but all we were doing was like following in Ron Cooper's footsteps because like Del McGay like totally trailblazed um, the whole mezcal category mm-hmm. in this country yep. and made bars like Mayowell possible. Um, but on that note, um, you know, you saw also not just like for bars like us to be possible, but for other people to realize, wow, people actually do like this stuff and like people are bringing in more and more mezcals now and it's just it's great it's absolutely great yeah i have to ask you uh do you feel that agave based drinks give you a different kind of drunk um well i will tell you this i i know um mezcal i i always say mezcal doesn't make me feel drunk it makes me feel happy like i remember on my 36th birthday a couple years ago we went down to oaxaca for day of the dead I got on a red eye here at maybe 12 a.m., flew down, got in about 6, met Ron Cooper and, like, Misty Kalkoff and a couple other people at the hotel where we always stayed or the little ranch or whatever the hell you want to call it. And at about 8 o'clock, I had my first copita for the day. And I said, I'm going to drink 36 copitas, one for every year. And so we marked them on my arm with a Sharpie in, like, fives, you know, so we didn't lose count because everybody else was drinking all day, too. No sleep after a red eye, 36 copitas, woke up the next day feeling fine. Like, it, no way. Yeah, it really, it really is. Um, 
It really is a yeah. different spirit. And it's weird because when was I... Was this all Del Maguey? Um, yeah, we were... Oh. Actually, it was weird because the um, it was all Del Maguey because we were visiting the Palenques that day. Mm-hmm. So we were going to the Palenques where they make it. And we saw... I don't remember... We probably saw... I think we went to Chichicapa and uh, Minera that day. So I think we went to two Del Maguey Palenques. And then it was odd because we wound up in... Uh, I remember I was up to about 33. Two or thirty-three, and we drove back to Oaxaca City. And then I remember. Hopefully, I, you weren't the one driving. No, I was okay. not. I, I actually it was funny because I remember I like ate tacos in my sleep because I kind of like passed out in the van. And then we were supposed to go eat tacos, so like Misty like had to wake me up. And then I kind of like slept, walked to the table, and sat down, and then ate some tacos. And then we went. We went to um, Los Amantes has a tasting room there, and I think the last three I actually drank was Los Amantes. Wow. Wow. You know, but mezcal, I'll drink it, and sometimes it gets frustrating. You're like, you actually want to get drunk, and like, I have to drink beer with it so I can get a proper buzz because it just makes me feel <laughs> like happy and things like that. Um, unless you drink it to get drunk, yeah. and like sometimes I'll be in a mood or I'll be ready to go, and uh, I'll drink mezcal to get drunk, and boy, does it punish you! It knows when you're drinking it, when you're abusing it. Yeah, you, really you need to treat mezcal with love, and you then. Do. Then it makes you happy. You do. Well. Yeah. I have to ask you also. Um, I've got from uh, from Steve Olson and the Del Maguey guys. These yeah, the little, copitas. The little copitas. Yeah. Yeah. Is that how you? They're little kind of clay. Yeah. They yep. look like very very yep. shallow pots. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the only way I like to drink mezcal. Like when you drink it. Like the, what it, what he did for those. Like when you go to Oaxaca, mm-hmm. um, they drink um, they drink them out of hickoras, which are um, it's kind of like a round squash. You know. It's, totally perfectly round they cut them in half and then they gore them out so it's basically a a little bowl made out of a like a squash shell or whatever and that's what they drink the mezcal out of there so that's the copitos are made to emulate that but if i drink you know if i go to a bar to drink you know mezcal and they'll give it to me like in a small rocks glass i can't stand it because like remember how they used to say uh you should drink spirits out of a brandy snifter Mm because you get all the flavors in that but it's actually a bad idea because you get that gas cloud in there where you actually can't really in like breathe the smell the spirit too much because you burn your nose and stuff like that that's what i get all the time now like if i don't drink it out of a copita and it's just habit too but i i actually always keep them in my bag so if i go to a bar and now get, get my scowl, i'll just take the rocks glass and fill up my my copita and drink out of that that's amazing yeah that's amazing and, it's, and there's an old mexican uh expression about how beans always taste better in a clay pot than a metal one as well oh is there yeah okay that makes sense though yeah yeah well I mean, we're out of time, but I, I okay. can't thank you. Uh, I can't thank you enough. You know, we didn't even get to talk about because you have so much interesting, so many interesting things going on about your project in LA, um, and your your work with uh, the Fatty Crab guys. Uh, we we love the Fatty Crew. I think that I've been to Fatty Crab more than any other restaurant in my life. It's just always a uh, a, a great time there. Um, and you're you're doing some work in Hong Kong with them. Yeah, that's pretty well, exciting yeah, well, we, uh, maybe we have one more minute yeah uh, yeah no <laughs> to yeah. talk about well just tell us tell us about about what you're doing the fatty crap guys and what it's like to work in hong kong and then we'll we'll wrap it up um it's it's good they're a great company i've always loved their food i've known colin for a long time um so just basically redoing the cocktail list at all the all the restaurants um and then we have you know we have one list for the queue one list for the um for the crab um and then 
also May they opened the uh, the fatty the it's a fatty crab in uh, Hong Kong, mm-hmm. but it's like sort of a cross. They're doing a little barbecue stuff there too, and uh, that was a really great experience. You know, like that's the great thing about this job is you get to work and travel sometimes. And uh, it was interesting experience, you know, like they don't deliver booze if it's raining, which is kind of weird. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit of a slower pace there. <laughs> um, it was it was challenging. Nobody wants to be a server, which is weird. Everybody wants to be a hostess instead of a server, which is weird. Which is weird because yeah. Yeah, it's hard to it's find like, hostess. Yeah, it's like a city full of like 17-year-old white models for some reason. And so everybody wants to be fabulous and be the serv- uh, be the hostess, and it's like looked down upon to be a server. Interesting. So it was like impossible to find servers there. We had we had some real special characters. <laughs> um, well, much easier than heading over to Hong Kong. Head over to My Well. Uh, just an always an awesome time. Uh, so. Phil, thank you so much yep. for being on In Thanks the Drink. Thanks for having me. This, this has been awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, this has been In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.